Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing antepartum hemorrhage. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. Um, And I'm Anna. I'm one of the gynaecology registrars um, here at uh, NUH. Welcome back, Anna. Thank you for having me back. No problem. Um, so in the last um, couple of podcasts we did, we, we looked um, in one of the podcasts on early pregnancy bleeding, as yep. mentioned. Um, but we're now going to do a couple of podcasts on pregnancy, um, later pregnancy bleeding, so yep. in antepartum hemorrhage and postpartum hemorrhage. Yeah, that's right. So in uh, this podcast, we'll discuss antepartum hemorrhage. Uh, now this is a bit of a stretch, but just assume I'm not that bright and I don't know <laughs> what antepartum hemorrhage is, Anna. What is it? Do you know what an antepartum hemorrhage is? Shall we just say no, I don't. It's a long I, time ago. It's been a long time ago and I'm loath to try in front of a specialist, so I'm very generalist, so no, I don't. Um, and the other thing is, uh, so within uh, A&E you tend not to get these kinds of things presenting most mm. of the time because they will come directly to maternity services, whereas you obviously do get a lot of early pregnancy bleeding. Um, so what is an antepartum haemorrhage? So by definition, it is any bleeding from the genital tract uh, after 24 weeks of completed gestation. So if we go back to the podcast we did before, bleeding less than 24 weeks would be classified as a threatened miscarriage, even though it was maybe 23 weeks and five days. Technically, by definition, that wouldn't be an antepartum haemorrhage until it was more than 24 weeks. Mm. And is that 24 weeks because that's the time at which the birth could be viable, is that? Yeah, absolutely. In the UK, that's the legal age of viability. But obviously, as neonatal services, intensive care improves, there are babies that are born at 23-plus weeks that do survive. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, the legal limit of viability is 24 weeks. Okay. And uh, are there different types of antepartum hemorrhage? The way we categorise them? Um, So we can uh, categorise it essentially by the volume. So um, as I said before, the definition is any bleeding from the genital tract. But actually that could be a bit of spot bleeding, for example, that is literally just one spot and then goes. Or it could be a a massive thousands of mils post uh, antepartum hemorrhage. So we classify it into spotting which is even difficult to quantify, Uh, minor which would be less than 50 mils, major which is then anything up to about a thousand mils and severe or massive would be more than a thousand mils. Mm. Is it, how easy is it to categorise, is is it accurate to do that Um, as a clinician? It is difficult because we know that uh, our estimates of blood loss, if we were just to observe the sheets and the patient, for Mm. example, are not very good. Mm. So as time's gone on, we're measuring more. Um, So any bleeding that is noted either on sanitary towels or bed sheets, on Mm. inco sheets, we'll tend to take them off and weigh them now. Mm. So provided that they're not contaminated with um, amniotic fluid or other bodily fluids that will add to the weight you mm. get you then minus off the, the weight of the sheet and the inco pad mm. and you get more of an accurate mm. um, idea of how much blood loss there's been mm. um, but obviously in like real life clinical scenario if you can tell if someone's bleeding a lot mm. and you're not going to 
take the sheets away and wait until they've been weighed in that situation before you start, you know, <laughs> If you've got managing. somebody who's actively hemorrhaging and in shock in front of you. Yeah, you know, then yeah. clearly then it doesn't matter <laughs> so much, but you probably would, you know, for documentation purposes, mm. get someone to go away and weigh the, mm. weigh the sheets so we could be certain about how much blood she's lost. Is it difficult if you're taking a history from a lady if you've not got, because it's, if I was bleeding, I'd be like, oh, I'm bleeding loads, because it's, when it's your blood, it always seems like, is it difficult when you're taking a history, if you haven't got anything, um, an objective evidence? Um, I think when you're taking a history, you may not know, yeah, because you're absolutely right. Women will say that any amount of bleeding for a woman in pregnancy is clearly concerning, mm. and so they will say that it's lots of blood, and then when you look, you may not, as a professional, be that concerned. Um, but examination in that sense then becomes quite important to actually have an idea in your own mind uh, what's going on. Cool. Um, so obviously, like you said, it's concerning for, for any pregnant lady coming in with, with bleeding. Um, why is it important for us to recognise uh, antipartum hemorrhaging? Um, so there can be, so if we take the complications that can result as, um, from antipartum hemorrhage, then there's two patients to think about in this case. So there's the maternal complications, which obviously if someone's losing significant amounts of blood, then they can become anemic, hypovolemic shock, um, etc. And that all needs to be treated. Um, there's also the fetal complications to think about. So um, when we think about the causes of antipartum hemorrhage, some of those can lead to fetal compromise. Um, and if they're not dealt with relatively quickly might lead to fetal demise if the bleeding is significant um, and so it's important to you know mm. to think about and may need to be managed pretty quickly in that case mm. um, that kind of brings us on to I suppose what the causes are because yeah I was going to say are there any risk factors or uh, or causes for uh, antipartum bleeding um, so the big ones that we we think about that relate specifically to pregnancy are uh, placenta previa which is where the placenta is implanted in the lower part of the uterus so that it's overlying the um, internal loss which means that the patient's much more likely to have bleeding um, there's also something called placental abruption, which is where the placenta separates from the uterus, and that very often causes bleeding. Mm. Um, and then there are some other rarer causes as well, but if we just take those two kind of first, um, it, they are the classical things that we think about because their presentations are both bleeding, but then otherwise the symptoms that the patient might present with could be quite different, and that might help you differentiate between the two. Mm. Um, you might also be able to uh, look in the notes of the patient, for example, and have a look and see at her um, her, her scan um, around 20 weeks. All women have a, um, a, a detailed scan where they look at the health of the baby and they also check the placenta for its position. So you might be able to, to know just from looking in the patient's handheld notes if her placenta is indeed low-lying mm. and the placenta previa. Um, but there are the classical and differentiating things. So pain is really important to ask about in a history because that helps uh, differentiate. Classically, in placenta previa bleeding, you don't have any pain, whereas in placental abruption bleeding, mm. women will often complain of abdominal or, or back pain. Mm. Um, the health of the baby is important to inquire about, so asking about fetal movements. So in placenta pre previa bleeding, the baby's unlikely to be affected by that unless the bleeding is massive. Mm. Um, and so the baby's normally moving quite you know, fine. Whereas in placental abruption, because the placenta is separated away, the baby 
will be um, affected quite quickly. Mm. And so the mother may complain of reduced or absent fetal movements in that case. Mm. Um, it's just worthwhile mentioning that in placental abruption, you can sometimes have um, a woman that complains of actually very minimal bleeding but actually still has a quite significant placental abruption. And mm. that's because sometimes not all of the blood is revealed externally. Mm. It's retained inside the uterus, and we call that a concealed abruption. So someone might have a baby in uh, significant showing signs of hypoxia on the monitoring uh, with significant abdominal pain who may have only very little bleeding. That's obviously still quite significant um, and needs managing. managing. So you've um, you already mentioned about sort of... Um the, the amount of bleeding and any pain. Are there any other questions that you, you'd need to ask in, in the history? Um, so there are other causes of antipartum hemorrhage other than ones that specifically relate to the pregnancy. Mm. Uh, the ones that we um, need to make sure we inquire about are ones that are related to bleeding from the lower genital tract itself, as in bleeding from the cervix particularly. Mm -hmm. um, so it's important to ask um, if the bleeding started spontaneously or mm. if it was provoked. So normally by that we mean was it provoked by sexual intercourse, for example. We'd mm. call that postcoital bleeding. Mm. Um, if that was the case, it would make it more likely that the bleeding was coming from the mother mm. uh, rather than from the uterus and from the, the pregnancy per se. Um, asking about um, a smear history is important there as well. So it's, it's uncommon but not unheard of for things like cervical cancer to present in pregnancy and that can pres that may present with an antipartum haemorrhage which is typically postcoital in nature. Mm. Um, Things like trauma obviously could have resulted in bleeding, so it's important to inquire about history um, in that respect. Um, so um, you've asked our question to our lady, what investigations will be needed? Um, so the first thing that would often be done um, is the mother would obviously have her routine observations check that she isn't tachycardic, hypotensive for example. It's quite unusual for women to you know, come in in shock from an antipartum haemorrhage but that does need to obviously be checked first. And then the uh, mother will, or the fetus will be monitored by way of a, a CTG. Mm. Um, and while that's running we'll probably get some other, we'll be examining um, the mother, examine her abdomen, examine her vaginally, see how much bleeding there is. Mm. Um, She'll have some blood tests taken, so for a full blood count and a, a group and save or a cross match, depending on how much she's bleeding. Um, a baseline renal function is always quite helpful, and a baseline clotting as well, especially if she's bleeding mm. a great deal. Um, and then obviously by the time you've done all of that, you'll probably then have an amount of the CTG that you can then interpret. So you'd want to know at that point, is there any evidence of fetal hypoxia that might mean you need to think about delivering the, the mother? Uh, so is there a standard management plan for a patient with uh, antipartum bleeding? Uh, not really, no, because obviously it depends on what the cause of the bleeding is as mm -hmm. to how you would then go on to manage the mother. Mm -hmm. For the vast majority of cases, um, I kind of I should say that all of the causes that we've mentioned, so causes related to the cervix, related to trauma, related to an abruption or placenta previa, um, most of the time we can't actually identify a cause so we rule out all of these things we mm -hmm. make sure that the bleeding settles and that the baby's doing fine and if that's the case we can't often put our finger on what the problem has been 
it's often a case of just observing the mother and just checking that everything settles down and that she doesn't continue to bleed more that may require then a, a different intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time, there's nothing actually further that we need to do. But then on the other end of the extreme, um, a big placental abruption where the mother's bleeding very heavily and there's evidence of uh, fetal hypoxia, that means the baby needs to be delivered um, you know, quite expediently then. Mm. So it's not a standard management. Why is the mother's blood type important? So that is thinking about the mother's rhesus blood group. Mm. Um, and so if a mother is rhesus negative, mm. it doesn't matter if she's O or A or B or AB or whatever, but if she's rhesus negative um, and she has some bleeding um, in her pregnancy, we have to we take that as something called a sensitizing event and that means that some of the baby's blood could have potentially mixed into the mother's bloodstream um, and so if we don't do anything about that it's possible then the mother will create antibodies towards um, a rhesus positive blood group if the baby is rhesus positive we have no way of knowing that mm. antenatally um, so what we tend to do is we give the mother something called anti d which then which binds to all of the baby's blood cells um, in the any any rhesus positive blood cells basically mops them up and prevents the mother making that immune response. Um, so that's really it's important that they get that. Mm-hmm. That prevents it won't make any difference for the current pregnancy because the mother's immune system won't have time to make those antibodies. Mm-hmm. But it would make a difference in her subsequent pregnancy if she developed uh, those those anti D autoantibodies. Um, and she carries a rhesus-positive fetus again in the future, then she runs the risk of um, getting haemolytic disease, the baby becoming anemic um, mm. antenatally, or the baby having um, haemolytic disease postnatally. If uh, our baby doesn't need to be delivered, yep. um, what will be the, the management plan for the, the rest of the pregnancy and, and, and delivery? So if the mother has just had um, a one-off, quite minor bleed, uh, which completely settles and the mother and baby are fine, um, and as I said, most likely we haven't come to a conclusion about what the reason for the bleeding is, mm. then actually there isn't really much uh, much different that's going to happen in that pregnancy. So the monitoring, the continuance of the pregnancy will be the same and we'll manage her pretty much like anyone else. If the mother has repeated bleeding in pregnancy, um, that can that can be a marker for obviously a, a particular problem that's causing it. It can also be a, a risk factor for having a small baby if you have repeated um, bleeding. And so we'd want to monitor that baby by doing serial growth scans and check that the baby is growing okay. Mm. Obviously, if it wasn't, then at that point you would want to intervene and think about planning delivery. Um, but, but it depends that how many weeks pregnant the, the mother is because you, you wouldn't do that very early but you might do that if the mother was um, 40 weeks for example um, and obviously then again the extreme end there may not be a continuing pregnancy if you need to plan delivery so if you do need to deliver the baby there's evidence the baby is if there's been a big abruption for example mm. um, then that pregnancy would you would deliver the baby basically Right, thank you Anna. I think that's anti-party hemorrhage done. And so thank you so much for coming. And uh, we'll see you in the next podcast for postpartum hemorrhage. Thank you. Thank you. That was the Take Orally Antipartum Hemorrhage podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put up links to any guidelines mentioned. And you can contact us to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.